Well, our text this morning will be in 2 Thessalonians. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to join me there. 2 Thessalonians. Uh, the story is told of three bricklayers who were toiling away at their trade, and they were each asked in turn what they were doing to describe the nature of their work. Uh, the first said, I am laying bricks. Seems to be the straightforward answer, right? The second said, I'm building a wall. And the third said, I am building a vast cathedral for the glory of God. Obviously, that third bricklayer had a bigger picture perspective that informed and motivated and inspired uh, his work. And... um, too often in life, we trudge along with our eyes down, right? Our attitude simply informed by our circumstances. Um, I know I can get caught up in that type of thinking, um, hard to, to see beyond the troubles that are in front of me. Uh, Paul, in writing to these believers in Thessalonica, wanted them to live their lives in light of Jesus' glorious return. This is clearly and overwhelmingly the theme of the letter. He wants them to have a big picture perspective. Uh, So uh, the the, the bricklayer has to think beyond just that one little brick, right? And to think what he's really doing there, what he's really building. Uh, We need to think not just about the, the little task that's in front of us right now, but we need to think about it in light of eternity, And to always have that informing our perspective, fueling our spirit, right? And so uh, Paul wants these believers and wants all of us as followers of Christ to live as people of confidence and hope, having a clear sense of purpose and direction And uh, we, I would suggest to you, uh, need this reminder as much, if not more, than the people of the first century. Uh, We are very much an immediate gratification culture. We think about the here and now. We don't give much thought to heaven, to uh, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, to the return of Christ. I say that to our shame. Uh, But uh, Paul is going to lift our eyes here in this text and, and cause us to think with a big picture, eternal perspective. Uh, We are continuing in our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible. Uh, We've um, been looking at all 66 books. Our goal is to look at all 66 books of the Bible in a single 52-week calendar year. And so that means we're moving really, really fast. We're looking at at, uh, overarching themes Uh, Not getting lost in the weeds. We don't have the luxury to get lost in in all the details and the richness of God's Word, but we want to understand the main thrust of God's Word in looking at whole books in a single setting. So again, today that's 2 Corinthians. But in our our journey, in our road trip, we've considered uh, certainly God's great work of creation, uh, how He established the world, how He created uh, humankind in His image, to serve as his representatives in the world, on the earth. Uh, And then, of course, we considered the the tragedy of human sin as Adam and Eve uh, turned away from uh, God's clear directions, 
they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin and death entered into the world. Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, cut off from access to the tree of life. And in some ways, that's the, the story of, of human history is our attempts to get back into the garden, to get back into a place of blessing and human flourishing, to, to find uh, the, the, the secret of eternal life, right? This is stuff that lies at the, the core of every human heart. Uh, so that, that's, that's the, the tragedy of, of, of Scripture, the dissonance of the biblical narrative. And yet, uh, we read in, in Scripture that God has provided uh, a way of escape. He's provided a, a deliverer. He promised it to Adam and Eve in the very wake of their sin, that he would send one a descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, would make all things right again. And so uh, people began to look for the fulfillment of that promise. When would the deliverer come? And of course, that deliverer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. God did the unthinkable. He, he sent his only son uh, into his creation to take on human flesh, to humble himself in order to pay the penalty for sin and to achieve the righteousness that we could not achieve. And so this is the, the good news, the opportunity to be forgiven of sin, uh, to be able to have a hope and a future, to be reconciled to the God who made us. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And we celebrate it as we draw together uh, each Sunday. Uh, at this point here in our study, uh, we are considering a series of, of letters penned by the Apostle Paul to the first century churches who had received this good news of the gospel. And Paul wanted them to be firmly rooted in the gospel. Uh, he wanted to, to safeguard the gospel from distortion or false teaching. And he wanted them to know how to live in light of the gospel. So Paul wrote a series of letters. We can be thankful he did. They've been preserved for our benefit under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Uh, we've noted that each of the letters was written to a different um, locale and that there was a, there's a backstory behind each of the letters. And so we spent a little bit of time tracing the backstory in Thessalonica last week because, again, Paul wrote two letters to this church. So we're not going to spend as much time. You can go back and listen to the, 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 the recording on the website if you want to go back and pick up a little more context on Thessalonica. But just briefly... We're going to trace out the backstory. Thessalonica was the largest city in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. It was on essentially the, the main uh, highway uh, between Rome and Asia. And so it was strategically positioned. It was a city of great influence. The church in Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey. So you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, all the things that were part of the establishment of that church. Paul's teaching time was cut short as he was driven out of the city by a militant Jewish contingent. So he was there probably only a month. We know he spent three consecutive Sabbath days teaching in the Jewish synagogue. He might have been there a little longer on one end or the other, but a relatively short amount of time. In some places, Paul spent a year, year and a half, two years. But one month here with these 
new believers. And I think that's a big part of the storyline, the backstory behind these letters. Um, out of concern for these new believers who were experiencing intense pressure and militant opposition. So again, Paul had to leave the city. He was driven out of the city, but these believers were still facing the opposition. And out of deep concern for them, Paul sent his co-worker Timothy to check on them. The sense is that Paul was persona non grata in Thessalonica. He couldn't go back, at least not at the time. So he did the next best thing. He sent his most trusted co-worker, Timothy, to go and check on the church. And Timothy brought back a good report regarding their persistent faith in God and their love for one another. So we read about that in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, but they were doing a really good job. And Paul was so, so encouraged uh, that they were weathering the storms of persecution and doing really well. So Paul wrote two letters to these new believers. Uh, the first, what we call 1 Thessalonians, was meant to commend them and to provide additional instruction. So again, he was only there for one month. He wasn't able to do all the teaching that he had hoped to do to really ground these believers in their new faith. So uh, we talked about 1 Thessalonians as being a training manual for new believers, uh, uh, where he, he, uh, he, he just kind of gives some, some real basics there to firmly establish them in the faith. The second letter that he wrote, what we call 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, was intended to correct a wrong understanding of future events. So Paul writes this second letter with a very specific topic in mind. And it has to do with their understanding of future events and how things were going to unfold. Paul would visit Thessalonica twice more on his third missionary journey, can read uh, some of those details in Acts 19 and 20. So here's the, here's the backdrop uh, behind the letters to the Thessalonians. Both Paul and these believers had experienced persecution, and it seemed that it really bonded them together. So the return of Jesus is the overwhelming theme of Paul's second letter. Uh, so again, he wrote about this in his first letter, but due to some misunderstanding, he was revisiting it, expanding on his teaching, and uh, spending more time helping them properly understand what was going to come. Uh, three different, um, if we were to break up the, the, the letter into an outline, I think chapter one, he addresses this theme of comfort. He takes the return of Christ and these future events and encourages the church with these truths. In chapter 2, there's a word of correction. Uh, this is sort of the body of the letter, and he steps in and addresses the, the misunderstanding and tries to set the record straight. And then chapter 3, he deals with conduct. And I'd say again, it's, being in, it's conduct informed by... Uh, the Lord's soon return, right? Informed by these future events. So, so that's sort of the, the, the brief movement of the letter that we'll trace out this morning. So first, the section on comfort in chapter 1. 
He says to them, our willingness to suffer for our faith inspires other believers to live by faith. He wants them to know of the impact of their faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Notice what he says here, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So notice what Paul says here. He says, essentially, good job. Uh, your faith is strong. It continues to grow stronger. Your love for each other continues to grow. Good, good job. Keep it up. But he also sort of Uh, connects the dots here for them. He wants them to understand the far-reaching impact of their faithfulness. We see that again there in verse 4. Paul says, everywhere I go, every church I established, every church I visit, I tell them about you. (laughs) And uh, I'm so proud of you. And your story is having an impact beyond Thessalonica. It's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? Have you ever thought about the impact of your of your faithfulness? I mean, I, I think back on people in my congregation growing up. I had a group of older men. And my mom, I remember mom bringing me to prayer meeting, and my dad had to work late oftentimes, and then we'd break out men and ladies, and I'm sitting there as a teenager with a bunch of older, they were ancient at the time, you know, old, old guys. And, 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 but I often think back on that. I think about Dr. Brett and Ray Terry and Ken Sinkler. And they, they weren't real flashy guys. They were pretty steady Eddie kind of guys. But I just think about the, I, I do think about their faithfulness. Um, I was joking this morning. Somebody had a crying little one that had to exit the service. You think, sometimes you think as a parent, why am I here? Like, why did I make the effort to come? <laughs> I'm not getting anything out of this. My child's certainly not getting anything out of it. Have you thought about the impact of just your faithfulness? in the lives of, of other people. Uh, especially, and that, that, that impact is even stronger when it's in the context of hardship or suffering, when it's not easy, right? That, that, that reflects something about our, our faith. And uh, Paul wants to encourage them in that. Boy, uh, your, your faithfulness is having an impact. <laughs> uh, everywhere I go, I get to tell people your story. And so, uh, yeah, wonderful encouragement here that Paul extends to them in the midst of their suffering. He's encouraging them. Here's the other thing he says here in this opening section. Those who suffer for God's kingdom will be vindicated when the king returns. Second uh, Thessalonians 1 verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. 
and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. So Paul commends them. He says, good job. Uh, But Paul points ahead to a greater commendation here, doesn't he? Uh, The commendation of God. Uh, God's judgment is righteous. He makes a great declaration here about who God is. God is just. God is one who uh, settles scores. He is one who makes all things right. He's one who brings about justice. And again, he means to encourage the, the suffering church with this great truth about God. What is happening to you and and the sins that are being perpetrated against you? God has not lost sight of these things. And God will one day make it all right. God will bring trouble. He will pay back trouble on those who have troubled you. And God will bring you relief from your trouble. There's coming a day in which all things will be reversed, right? And things will be made right and scores will be settled. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. This great day when Jesus returns. This is the the expectation, the great expectation of the believer. The return of Christ. And notice how Paul describes it. He will appear in blazing fire with his mighty angels. He will punish those who remain in their sin and rebellion. Those who have spurned the offer of the gospel. This is not your flannel graph picture of Jesus here. Right? We're used to thinking of Jesus cloaked in compassion, coming alongside gently to those who are suffering. Uh, we're reminded that Jesus came a, a first time in humility to bear the sins of the world, but Jesus is coming a second time in judgment to set all things right. And this is the powerful picture that Paul focuses on here. Notice that this not only will sort of, this great return of Jesus, it will not only sort of highlight God's glory, but in some sense we share in this glory. Notice what it says here, verse 9, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Somehow we, we too will share in his victory when he returns. This is certainly really good news for God's people, right? The return of the king is really good news for the loyal subjects of the kingdom. And that's, of course, Paul's focus here. He's wanting to encourage these believers, hold tight, hold tight. Uh, God is going to set all things right. But I want to just pause here for just a moment and remind you that while this is good news for the loyal subjects of the king, this is most certainly bad news for those who have rebelled against his reign. Paul gives a description here of eternal conscious torment. What we might say is hell right? These individuals, the terminology in the text says they will pay the penalty that their sin deserves. There's a sobering aspect to what's being described here. 
And notice the, the further description of that punishment. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is really the, the most terrible thing about hell. It's not, it's not fire and physical suffering. It is separation from God. Matter of fact, Cain, you might remember in Genesis 4, he killed his brother Abel, and he was put out from the presence of the Lord. And hardened Cain, the murderer, said, this is a punishment greater than I can bear. All of a sudden, Cain realized the implications of his sin. And he couldn't fathom the idea of an existence cut off from God. But this is the fate of those who reject God, who choose to live apart from God and His reign. They will be given what they wish. It is a sobering picture here. Hell is certainly not a popular teaching in our day. There's a general expectation that everyone goes on to a better place, but the Scriptures indicate that the vast majority of people are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Paul speaks of it clearly here. Jesus spoke more about hell than about heaven. The day is good news or bad news depending on your orientation to Jesus. And notice how Paul closes this section in verse 10. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So Paul says you can look towards this day with great hope and with great confidence because you have responded to God's offer of grace, the gospel that we gave to you, right? The the, the key there is faith. Have you turned to Jesus and acknowledged him as king? Or are you still your own king? So before we, this is again, is intended to be a great encouragement to God's people. But you do have to ask yourself the question, my friends. Are you prepared to face that day? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? The offer of salvation has been freely extended to the people of the first century and to us. The gospel has been declared In no uncertain terms, have you received that good news by faith and come to peace with God? Or have you spurned that offer of grace? I plead with you, my friends, to settle that matter. If you're here today unsure, you turn and flee to Christ. Paul closes this opening section with a prayer. It's interesting, actually, each of the sections Paul, Paul closes with prayer. Uh, I think there's this overwhelming sense that uh, at the end of the day, it's God who is at work in accomplishing these things. It's a wonderful encouragement. Aren't you glad that, that your salvation and your sanctification don't just depend on you? <laughs> that God is determined to complete the work that he has begun in you. That ought to be a great encouragement to us. I know it is to me. And so Paul closes here. Verse 11 of chapter 1, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. The second section here is focused on correction. So comfort, sort of an expanded introduction. Uh, Paul extends his greetings to them. He continues to say, good job, keep it up. 
uh, tries to encourage them in the midst of their difficulties. But Paul now moves beyond the introduction and touches on the real reason for his letter. Uh, These believers were confused uh, about what was to come. Let's uh, note here chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So this is the the issue. They had come to the conclusion that the day of the Lord had already arrived. So Paul uses a number of terms here that we need to sort of come up to speed with. Um, And one of your vocab words today is the word eschatology. Right? Eschatology is the study of last things or future events. Uh, and so a lot of the words here that Paul's using are words we would say uh, come up in discussions about eschatology, about the future. So he introduces some beautiful themes here uh, in these couple of verses in chapter 2. Uh, he touches on the, uh, the idea of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right there in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, this is a wonderful theme. Again, Jesus came the first time in humility to die on a cross for the sins of the world, but he is coming a second time in power and glory. That's the, the coming, the second coming that Paul is, is talking about here. So we celebrate Advent uh, and, and as we move towards Christmas, we, we stop and we think and we anticipate the coming of Jesus, his first coming. But there is a second advent. There is a second coming uh, when Jesus, again, returns to make all things right. So, so this is a common term that is used. Paul uses it here. He talked about it in his first letter to the Thessalonians, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also talks here about the gathering, the gathering of God's people. Okay, here again is a wonderful, um, a wonderful notion. Paul again talked about this in his first letter, uh, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, Jesus talked about this theme in Matthew 24, which says he would gather his elect uh, from the ends of the earth. Right? He would call, when Jesus returns, he would call together his people. Uh, this is a beautiful scene. Here's Jesus, right? The rightful king who's been in a far country. Rebellion has broken out in his absence. And the king returns and he says, all of you who are loyal to me, gather to me. All of my loyal subjects, all of you who have been faithful and true, come to me. And uh, you have the trumpet sound, which in, uh, in, a, in a Jewish context, uh, uh, would signal the gathering, uh, the, the shofar, the, the gathering of the people for war or for an assembly of some sort. You know, but this is it. The, the horn sounds and God's people are now to gather to him. So this again is another just wonderful imagery. The other uh, 
term that is used here, a phrase, is the day of the Lord. And this is a phrase that had deep roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. It would have been very familiar to the the Jewish people who were reading Paul's letter. Uh, The day of the Lord primarily described the fearful time of God's coming judgment on the earth. The day of the Lord primarily was a sobering day. Uh, And so uh, this is the other concept that is being discussed here in this section. And all of these concepts were connected with the return of Jesus. And Paul had taught a great deal about these concepts. So how could they be confused about this? How could they think that the day of the Lord had already come? Obviously, Jesus was not there. Uh, what's, what's going on here? Uh, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because we're only hearing one side of a phone call. Never had that experience, right? Someone's next to you talking, and you're getting the gist of it. You know what the topic is, but you're really not getting the nuances, right? Because you're only hearing one side. And that's kind of what's happening here, uh, Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So Paul is citing previous instruction that he had given them. They knew what he was talking about, but we don't. At least we're not sure. So what is going on here? What would have caused these believers to think that the day of the Lord had already arrived. We do know that the day of the Lord was a very robust concept uh, that would have culminated in the return of Jesus. And it seems that these believers, again, were experiencing persecution, and perhaps they thought that they were somehow experiencing God's judgment The day of the Lord, this day of God's judgment had begun and they were somehow being subjected to God's judgment. In any regard, the effect that it had on them was not good. They were unsettled, the text tells us. Uh, It's as if a a great wave had come by and and they had become uh, unmoored from the dock, right? (laughs) They, They had become untethered from their... Their, their faith and the stability of their faith and their world had just turned upside down, right, when they started thinking about this and its implications. And the text also says they were alarmed. This speaks of their emotional state. They had become anxious and worried. And Paul writes this letter. Again, think about this. Paul writes the letter, has to figure out a way to get the letter from Corinth, where he was now, to Thessalonica. Uh, And you had to have a courier. You're not dropping it in the mail. I mean, there's incredible investment here of time and resources to get this little three-chapter letter to the believers in Thessalonica. But Paul felt that strongly because he knew that God did not want his people to be overcome by anxiety and fear. He didn't want these believers to be experiencing that, to be unsettled in their faith. He wanted them to be confident, strong, stable, facing the future with great joy and expectation. 
And so Paul writes to clear up this matter for them. So he says, essentially, don't be anxious. This is part of the correction that he offers here as he writes to them. The other thing that he he says here in this correction section, trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul goes on to describe two things that were yet to come. There will be a great apostasy or a great turning away, or the NIV says a great rebellion, there will will come a time when many will turn away from the faith. And he also says that uh, a man of lawlessness will be revealed, will come onto the scene, a man of sin or a man of lawlessness. It's likely that this is the Antichrist that is described in other parts of Scripture. This man will lead people astray. He will stand in opposition to God. He will put himself forward as God. And the text actually goes to describe, and the sense is that there will be many who will fall away, and in part they will fall away because of this individual. This individual will lead many away from the truth. Okay, it will be a time of great deception. And Paul actually goes here and unpacks the the nature of this deception, beginning in verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Here it is, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So Satan will bring about a great deception. This is how, this is how the enemy works. Uh, so Satan generally doesn't employ frontal attacks. He usually uses deception. You find that oftentimes, uh, even in the Garden of Eden with the serpent, Adam and Eve, Right? There was a whole lot of truth and a little bit of lie mixed in to distort it. Right? This is how Satan works. It's slippery. Uh, it, it is convincing. And the idea here is that this individual is going to be very impressive. He is going to be a very uh, smooth talker. He's going to... Uh, uh, the text actually says he's going to, to mix his lies with truth. And he's going to... Uh, Affirm people in their wickedness. The text of Scripture tells us in different places that people will, in the times to come, gather around them 
uh, teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And so in some sense, this, the, the message of this individual is going to be right in line with what people want to hear. And they're going to love their wickedness. They're going to love their lifestyle more than they love the truth. <laughs> the truth is uncomfortable. <laughs> so there's this great deception that's going to happen. And this individual is going to rise up. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff here, isn't there? I mean, we don't know what in the world this is all describing. We don't know who will fall away, who will be part of this rebellion. We don't know who the man of lawlessness is. We don't know when he will come. But we do know that he is doomed to destruction, verse 3. We do know that he will be restrained. Very interesting language in verse 7. This individual is going to be restrained. He will only be able to go as far as God allows him to go. We do know that Jesus will overthrow this individual with the breath of his mouth at the splendor of his coming, verse 8. And if we were to look down into verses 13 and 14, we do know that God has called us through the gospel to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God is sovereign and we are on the winning side. I don't believe Paul gives us all of this to give us some sort of a little strict, clever little timeline so we can predict the future. I think what Paul is doing here is reminding them that God is sovereign over the events of human history. And even though it looks like the wheels have come off, much of the time, God is carrying out his purposes, make no mistake, and he will prevail. So in this section, again, he encourages them to trust in the sovereignty of God. Stand firm. Verse 15, here's his resolution. Stand firm then. Don't be unsettled, regardless of your situation or your emotions. Don't let your circumstances change your theology. All right. And again, he closes chapter 2 with a prayer reminding them that God is the one who will establish us and cause us to stand firm. He closes with a section on conduct, chapter 3. He urges them, first of all, to pray. Pray for the advance of the gospel throughout the world. Paul says, pray for us that the message of the Lord would spread There's an urgency here. He says actually that it would spread rapidly. Some translations say that it would speed ahead. Uh, I think again, in the context here of the return of Christ and this great day, this coming day of judgment, Paul is urging them to pray and be fervent about the advance of the gospel. Paul asks them to pray too that... that, uh, he would be protected in the midst of persecution, right? Experiencing hardship and difficulties in this time. And Paul wants them to be praying for each other. Recognize the spiritual warfare. So he urges them to pray. Uh, he urges them to persevere. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Uh, the heart. We tend to think of the heart as the place of emotion, but that's not the way the heart functions in the biblical way of thinking. The heart is the control center of the soul. It's the place where you make decisions and, 
and you uh, sort out values. And so he says, I want, your, I want your hearts to be directed towards God's love, that you'd be steady and confident in knowing that God loves you, regardless of the experiences of your life, and that you would also be mindful of Christ's perseverance, the suffering that he endured, and the outcome of his suffering, that he did suffer, but now he has been exalted. He wants them to have that as their lens, as their template, uh, as they continue to serve and persevere. Encourages them to work hard. This is an interesting section. Paul gives quite a bit of space to it in the letter. Uh, Many had engaged in idleness. They had stopped working. And most think that this has something to do with their bad eschatology. Right? If Jesus is coming back tomorrow uh, or next week, if this is imminent right now, then why why keep working? And uh, people presumably had quit their jobs and Paul's having to encourage them. No, listen, living with expectation, living with hope, living with an awareness of Christ's return doesn't mean that you stop doing all your daily tasks. Uh, It just means that you do those tasks with uh, an orientation towards the return of Christ. And so he urges them towards uh, hard work. Uh, Separate from unbelievers, from believers rather, who refuse to obey God's word. This seems uh, like rather harsh instruction, right? To shun people that uh, don't follow these instructions. Uh, but Paul understood the, the, the nature, the contagious nature of sin, the toxic nature of sin. And he's calling them to maintain purity in the church. If people are unwilling to submit themselves to the teaching of God's word, uh, you need to distance yourself from them. But Paul doesn't just have in mind some sort of punitive action. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Paul's talking about a a distancing, uh, not just for the good of the church, but for the good of that individual. Paul says, remember, they're they're your brother or your sister. Uh, And so uh, Paul has in mind that that we're calling them back. That, That dissonance is to be symbolic of the dissonance that they are experiencing from God. And the whole goal in all of that is restoration that Paul has here. So uh, we, don't, we don't challenge people or confront people about sin because we, we're angry. We confront people about sin because sin is destructive. Sin destroys. And we care enough to warn people about the destructive nature of their sin. So Paul is calling them to healthy relationships with one another. And then again, he closes with a prayer, reminding them that God is a God of peace who is able to grant peace even in the midst of suffering. So uh, again, he moves through uh, talking about his encouragement and his concern into a section on confrontation and correction and then into a closing section on conduct. But in all of it, Paul is reminding them of a coming day when the king will return to establish his kingdom. A fearful day for those who have lived in rebellion against his reign, but a day of great joy for his loyal subjects. And Paul is calling us to live our lives in light of Jesus' glorious return. To maintain a big picture eternal perspective. 
in the midst of our daily lives and service.